Welcome to the Human Design Collective Podcast, where we explore the system as a map of our unique potential, from the mundane to the mystical. If you'd like to dive deeper into your design, we invite you to check out our Living Your Design Workshop starting November 29th, 2023, and Rave ABCs in January 2024. For more information, go to courses.humandesigncollective.com. Blossom Benedict is a 6'2 emotional generator, IHDS certified analyst, and Living Your Design guide. Blossom speaks from embodied experience after over six years diving deep into the human design experiment. She shares her process meeting and working with the system and how it coincided with her going onto the roof as a six-line profile. In this episode, we explore how an understanding of the mechanics of human design can help reframe certain life events. We also hear about Blossom's experience with the emotional process, deconditioning, and getting to know one's open centers and bridge gates as areas of wisdom. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome, Blossom. We're so happy to have you on the podcast today and really looking forward to getting to explore your experience with us and with anyone out there who's listening. So thanks for being here. Thank you. Happy to be here. It's been a while in the making and we've gotten to play with you quite a bit in the human design realm. So we thought we'd start the way we usually do and see if you could share something about your origin story with human design and how you moved into it and maybe also what was going on in your life at the time. Yeah. So Amy got a front row seat for this process because my first human design reading was with her. And, you know, I had been involved in another body of work for over a decade that was about consciousness and supposed to be about finding your own authority in different words, but was fairly homogenized. And my process of getting out of that work was really just kind of shattering. I have a somewhat tribal design and I kind of lost my whole tribe. And I also really thought that I had been spending a decade doing healing and deconditioning work and was really shocked to find that I felt like There was so much unhealed, so much confusion about who I was. I'd been really trying to mimic the founders of this work more than I had really embodied or discovered who I was. And so I was really just kind of shattered and debilitated, I would say. And it's funny, my response to that was the thing that I knew inside myself was I just need to sit still. I'm so uncomfortable and I need to not fix this. Like my mind was just like, I'll do another thing. I'll start my own radio show. Wow. And I was like, you need to sit still and let this process happen. And so I really didn't want to reference any other systems. I didn't want to talk to any psychics. I didn't want input because I felt like what had brought me to my knees was giving my authority away. And so a friend of mine though was watching me in this like really stuck and kind of dark place and was like, I really think you'd love human design. And I was like, I don't want to talk to another person about another system. (laughs) And finally, um, I think it was about a year into that process where I was like, okay, I knew Amy from this other work before. And I was like, I'll have a conversation with her about this. And gosh, my first reading, I think my first three readings with you, I just like cried (laughs) through so much of them because it was so relieving, I think, to have a compass of some sort. There was so much truth. I also had spent that previous year exploring my shadows deeper than I had in the past and really just beginning to discover those. 
And God, I was so vulnerable to hear them being named in my design. If you look at my red and black, my black starts with the joyous in the sun. Like it's super transpersonal. It has the Buddha and, you know, all these like really beautiful enlightened words. And my design is like control, the big ego, the, you know, the gate of principles. So I'm across the demands and I always think about I'm left angle. But if my body and my design were both right angle, my personality would be service and my body would be tension. Mm -hmm. I feel like I discovered that for the first time, like how intense I am, my body's closed taste, second line hermit. So I felt like I had to really come to terms with this way that people may have been experiencing me that I was not aware of. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm joyous and transpersonal, all these things, but also bring a lot of intensity to the table in the room. So yeah, it was a really shocking, beautiful, terrifying, enlightening process, my first reading. And it started just a really deep process for me. When I think back to having those exchanges with you, there was something in it. I could feel that stillness in you. It felt like you were stopped in your tracks Mm -hmm. Like it was a moment of silence to get to potentially really feel and maybe also accept Mm -hmm. some of these things in a different way. Yeah. And I think about, you know, my personality, earth, what grounds me is this gate 52 in the sixth line, this stillness. You know, when I heard about my design and my authority, I went, oh, how did I know that I just needed to wait? I just needed to stop and wait. But it really resonated as like, oh, I had found that little nugget before even hearing my reading. But I was reflecting, you know, in the chapter before human design, I was super just public at a radio show and put all sorts of blogs and videos out. And that stillness that set in, you know, this is the first public conversation I've had in seven-year cycle now, or six and a half, whatever, we're coming close to a seven-year cycle. So it settled in and it stuck around. It was like a seven-year process. And in that time, of course, I've been studying human design like crazy. It gave my mind something to do. But I really have been sitting and waiting and deconditioning. Like that process really is just, it's really deep. Can you say a little more about some of the layers The image I have of you, or if I imagine you in your deconditioning process, I can sort of imagine almost like layers lifting off of you or something. Mm. Can you say something more about what that's been like? So I got obsessed with the ephemeris and transits and all my cycles and all my returns in the first probably year. So I ran, you know, 80 years of solar returns and I highlighted like all the definition I'd had my whole life. I made a timeline with 500 events in my life. I mean, it was just really crazy. What did I get here and what is happening? Like, What is happening? So the first real settling in or peace I got was when I started to kind of read the story of the transits and go, oh, this is always going to happen. Like on the date I had this big kind of blow up with the founder of the work I was doing, the story is like written in the transits. And then I started looking at the solar return from that time. And it's just so clear, like what I needed to learn, cross the Maya, all third line or really trial and error, you know, like in the material world before that. I was so in the material world, doing seminars, making money, traveling, doing all the things. So I think that was the big thing for me was just the first sense of no choice. 
the first sense of a surrender to my life story. And this chapter that had felt shattering was in my life story. There's another place between the link nodes. This is a much more advanced thing. Andrea talks about, you can literally see if your life journey includes being shattered. And I'm like, well, mine does. And it did. So there you go. It's in there too. (laughs) I think the second thing that was like really profound for me was looking at the charts of the people who I had been involved in this work with. There's two founders of this body of work. They have the same birthday, so the same incarnation cross, and they're born 29 years apart. So the nodal cycles are nine and a half years each, so they have the same nodes. And they're both very, very individual, and the work was so individual. It was all about like empower yourself, know what you know, and to realize like I don't have a lot of individual definition. So I actually felt really wrong in that system a lot. Like I should be more individual. And then also noticing there was also a real tribal code there. They have a lot of tribal definition too, but that was more unconscious or not spoken about. But you don't go against all these tribal rules. You don't speak out. You don't rock the boat. And when I look at where this was in my life process, so this happened seven years into my Saturn return, but I'm a sixth line. And what had happened before that is right around 29, like I'd been in the system for a long time and my sixth line literally woke up and I had this experience of like integrity being born in me and all these things we were doing and selling to people that I just was like, ah, it's whatever it is. You know, all of a sudden I was like, wait, what are we doing? And why does what we're saying not actually match the energy of what's happening? And Why do we say it's about questions, but then if someone asks a question, they get shamed. This thing I'd been able to go along with in this real trial and error phase, it's all fun. We're living the high life thing. Something woke up and kind of couldn't abide by that anymore. To circle back, that was like thing two that happened was just to analyze this environment and see, oh, they're just living their design perfectly. And what they're saying aligns with their design as it's actually pretty good advice for them. And the problem only came in when I couldn't see their design and I couldn't see my design and I didn't know what pieces of that work that I was trying to like fit into myself were really incorrect for me. And in some ways like detrimental or unhealthy or really damaging advice. That was layer two. (laughs) I really have had these other layers, I would say, a time where I'm like really looking at all my bridging gates or like where I'm really just looking at, I didn't speak for these six or seven years, but I could really feel all this conditioning to like attract attention and prove something, prove anything. Am I just letting my life pass and have no meaning? You know, the mind was like really not into this experiment. You know, of kind of withdrawing from the world. And I think I just gave my mind a lot of things to study, like read PHS, read rave psychology, just chew on this while the body goes through this process of letting some of this go. Because my mind was obsessed with a lot of that for a long time. Prove something, do something, do anything. (laughs) (laughs) What a great way to deal with that, to be like, here, listen to 50,000 hours of raw talking and see if that satisfies you. you know? Here, read through these 50 manuals and 
engage with something while potentially the body could have a chance to process. Totally. You know, it is absurd the volume of information I kind of was digesting early on because I couldn't live that. Like I wasn't feeling that in my cells yet. It was just helpful in this other way. Like keep the mind busy while the body slowly, you know, I'm emotional. I'm still actually processing open and defined centers in my defined channels. You know, this real surface stuff is what I'm like really starting to feel in my body and understand while my mind is chewing on like, all the layers, all the dimensions, all the all the other stuff. Yeah. That's kind of how Ra describes it. It's like human design. It's entering in through the mind and it's giving our mind something to do and something to focus on or work with as we go through the deconditioning process and we move back into a greater state of embodiment. And looking at your chart feels like that was a very correct part of your process of getting onto the roof, as you were saying, is you've got the 58 and the 52 and understanding circuit, mm-hmm. working with patterns, six line, you know, kind of stepping back and seeing a bigger picture of, you know, how all this stuff works and seeing their designs, as you mentioned, and that being something that, you know, could kind of bring you into a greater state of integrity and stillness and being able to separate yourself out from the conditioning. Yeah. Like one thing that was really hard for me to wrap my head around or didn't sit well was this process we describe of going on the roof and that's supposed to happen, the Saturn return. And I remember talking to you a lot, Amy, early on, because I was like, why did this shattering happen seven years into that? You had put out a hypothesis. One, it takes a while to climb onto the roof, but two, I have all this energy and root pressure in my design. And my hypothesis now is a little more like if you haven't started climbing on the roof by seven years into that Saturn return, something is going to put you there. Yeah, I think I was just running on that root pressure. I have all this overreach and just so much stimulation in my design, determination and just all these motors. And I think it just took a while to say, nope, you are being pulled out of the game. And yet, like you said, you could feel the birth of what we could call that integrity or that different kind of a witness, Mm -hmm. some part internally that was starting to see things differently much earlier than that. Absolutely. Yeah. And that really did align with 29, with the hit of the Saturn return. When I first got my reading and I've stopped, life has stopped me. I'm sitting still. I thought I was on the roof then. And here we are almost six years later. And I just keep climbing. It's so weird. If I thought I was on the roof then, I was then at least like reading all this stuff and digesting all this stuff. Like that has really shifted and subsided. Like sometimes I'll dive into something, but the way my energy is kind of let go and my mind will find a new thing and I'll be like, oh, maybe this is my next thing. I'll get all this energy and excitement for it. And then my system, it just can't engage. Looks at all the bridging gates. How are people behaving? I have five bridging gates. So the gate of behavior, the gate of power, the gate of focus, the gate of mutation, and the gate of intimacy. So no matter what comes up, my design is looking at like, well, how are they behaving? How are they using their power? What are they focused on? Is this actually going to change anything? That one's often a killer, like, wah, wah, no. (laughs) (laughs) And then I kind of back up. So it's wild to even come to terms with like, hey, is it possible to get comfortable up here? Because 
I'm not sure my energy is going to like fully latch on to a thing or is meant to until this Chiron return. I don't want to decide that mentally. I'm very open to being used and engaged in a different way, but it's a trip and all the six lines I'm talking to are in similar trips. Like I can't get off the roof. I want to get down. I want to be part of something. Yeah, it's a trip. I know you're not there yet, but you're on the eve of your Uranus opposition in mm-hmm. 2025. And that's often not emphasized that much for six lines in terms of the six line process. But what I've seen, and I believe Amy's seen it as well, it can hit everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone can have a big Uranus opposition. You know, it might depend a bit on the individual, but are you feeling any shifts, something kind of coming and part of that on the roof process of having that is a marker in the middle, more or less? I'm really feeling a shift. Yeah. I don't know what it's going to look like, but I had a reading with Genoa. I've done a lot of work with him. I love his work. One thing he said about cycle returns, I know we don't often look at channels and cycle returns. We really focus on the cross and the nodes, but he said whenever he sees that 360 in a cycle return, like life is going to look very different before versus after, like that mutation. He said it's often unrecognizable. And I do kind of feel like that kind of shift is coming up. I have some guesses at what that could be that would like fully transform my life. But yeah, I have a little like, oh my God, I thought we already went through the mutation stuff. (laughs) Like I thought we did it. Didn't we do it? But I also have the cross of consciousness, this channel of transitoriness. So I'm very curious what all of that may look like. But wait, there's more. I'm getting that message too. (laughs) Oh, you thought you were done with that piece. I mean, you guys both had big Uranus oppositions, right? It makes me a little nervous. Not going to lie. Well, you had a big party in your post-Saturn return. I think it's so interesting with the cycles to get to see the way they can, you know, sometimes it seems to me like when the cycle transits come in, they can really just pull apart some of the things we've built that are really not aligned for us. Mm -hmm. And there are all kinds of ways we can react to that. Try to white knuckle through and hold on. We can go with it and kind of blow everything up. We can try to temper it. There's a lot of nuance we can look at, I think, in the whatever the native design is, whatever the cycle return is. But it seems like to me, maybe especially now, because we're in such mutative times as well, that it just seems to be an intense transition point, each one of them really in their own way. But I wonder if when with some of those cycles, we go through a big transformation or we're really go through what it means to have aspects of our lives sort of dismantled and really rediscover and have to rework everything we thought about what we are and what's going on, that maybe either we get better at that, build a muscle there or something so that we're able to weather the changes and the transitions in a different way. We don't expect to have things be just still and stable and the same anymore. Maybe we recognize that there is this movement in life. Or maybe we have a big hurrah like you did. We do a big clean out of something. And then maybe the ones that follow are a little more chill. Given the state of the world right now, we're kind of swimming in some pretty wild water. So yeah, maybe that's just part of what's on the menu for us all anyway. My first reading, Amy, my Uranus opposition is seven years and one day after my first reading with you. Oh. 
I think about that a lot in terms of getting like one complete deconditioning cycle before whatever that is that shows up. And my trust in my authority has grown, I think, to the point where I'm just in, you know, I'm just in. So I feel a little like whatever happens, it just is like, it's fine. Like, I'm not going to fight with the current anymore. I'm going to float down the river. And if that dismantles my current life, it's going to be correct, especially if and as I'm following this authority and this process I'm getting more and more familiar with. I'm really grateful for the time that I've had before of each of these chapters. It really strikes me the way you were talking about the split. So you've got the 1858 channel, you've got the 1949, you've got the 2946, mm-hmm. these five different bridging gates that you mentioned. I wanted to go back to it because there was something about it that struck me. And I've heard you talk about it before. I think in the depth of your study, you've done such an amazing job of synthesizing the keynotes and the information and then being able to match that to your experience. Mm-hmm. But there was something about the way you were naming it that really was showing me the beauty and the depth of the understanding circuit that when we can see certain patterns and then we can see them play out with this sort of regularity or this predictability, there might be something in that that actually helps us to relax or like helps us. Mm. I, I was just thinking about you naming that, like knowing that if you come into a new body of work, if you're coming into a new situation starting to get used to the fact that, oh, you're going to watch your mind run through these five themes and evaluate everything that's going on through those five themes. And you're probably going to get to see that with some predictability in a way that then Mm -hmm. it doesn't fool you the way it could have. We're all educated about the wisdom potential of these open centers. And I've really seen you, Amy, like name how grateful you are for each of your open centers over time, the further you are into your deconditioning process, the wisdom there. And I'm not sure we look enough at the wisdom potential of these bridging gates. You are literally an expert in your bridging gate. And yes, my mind, you know, gate nine. So I have most of the stream of taste. I have 52, 58, 18, 48. So I'm very, very collective logical. So nine is a very torturous gate for my mind. I wake up in the morning being like, what should I focus on? What should, if I just knew what to focus on, you know, my energy would be like, so what do I focus on? So my mind wants me to like pick a thing and focus and just like waiting to respond to something seems like a really terrible idea to my mind. Because our mind wants to be each of these bridging gates. I want to have the power. I want to behave correctly. I want to create intimacy. I want to be the one that mutates things, right? So that was the first level of looking at my bridging gates is letting go of, but I'm not the one that doesn't come out of me in a consistent way. I really wanted that, letting go of that, grieving that. I think there's grieving in meeting our design letting go, understanding you're not certain things, maybe that you really wish to be. I really wanted to be so individual, you know, and unique and creative and mutative. And I'm super collective and tribal. So there's the grieving. And then as soon as I really understood, that's what I'm watching in other people. My whole life, I've been looking at the gate of behavior and how do people behave. My whole life, I've been looking at how do people use their power. And with this channel of correction too, judgment, all this energy to correct authority, 
If you're not behaving well, you're not using your power well, you're not going to mutate something, you don't have integrity. I wrote my first petition in third grade and got kicked out of third grade because the teacher, the authority, this is what 5818 is about, was not behaving correctly. They didn't have integrity. They weren't using the power they had been given. So I'm this like little joyful, delightful creature in class until authority doesn't behave correctly. And I think that really is a thing that when you keynote my full design that I kind of am built for and watching. And I can only imagine if you only had one bridging gate, like how much even more of an expert you might be in how people are doing that. And I have to remind myself like gate nine I'm judging, what are you focusing on? But that's really, is it to my taste? Because it's in the stream of taste. It's not like, you know, what's good to focus on, but it is certainly something I'm watching. Yeah, and I think we just get hyper-focused on our bridging gates for better or for worse. And so if you understand the gift it can be rather than letting it torture you, it's a powerful piece of a design. What have you seen in terms of strategy in regards to the bridge gates and those themes that you've mentioned? Has strategy been helpful in experimenting with that in terms of how you enter into things in terms of these bridge gate themes? Well, I would say knowing I have emotional authority has been really helpful on that topic because when I slow down, I can watch those five themes and decide, are people behaving and using a power in a way that feels an integrity to my system and is sensitive and meets the needs of the tribe? You know, my authority channel being that 1949. Also, just the waiting to respond, right? To let something come. And then I kind of run through, my system is just running through these things when something comes to me. Here's a new business possibility or here's a new relationship. I think it's something that my system just looks at and for. If you have that awareness and you're watching these things and you've become really expert on them, or you have a deep wisdom in those areas, then if someone's asking, if someone's coming in and saying like, hey, there's this thing going on and asking for your awareness or what do you see here or what would you do here? Mm-hmm. It feels like a lot of that stuff would be you know, well-received in the right context, in the right circumstances. But like we know with the channel of judgment, judgment given versus being judgment asked for is a very different social dynamic for us. That channel of judgment's my only conscious channel. And so my mind is never going to stop doing it. But more and more, I don't bother to share my judgment because if it's not being asked for, and even if it is being asked for, if it's not going to mutate something and you're not using your power, right? And it's, we're not intimate, like I'm kind of not going to bother. That channel's though all in six lines and actually six colors. That channel is pretty aloof right now too. Eh, Is it really going to help to fix that thing? Like, is that really going to change anything? Is it worth it? Or is life fixing that in its own way? I went through a phase where getting out of this organization, like there was anger, there were all kinds of things going on. And at one point I was like, do I try to fix this? Or do I try to whatever, take them down? Or do I have some role to play? And there is a real six line... I don't know. Life is taking care of things. Like most things aren't mine to take care of. And then if I really wait and I really get clear at a certain point that there is something that's mine to do, then I engage. But that 2946, when it does turn on, when my solar plexus gives it the go, it's like the most orgasmic burst of life. I love, like it's so in, it's a fire hose of energy to get this thing done in an overreaching way, total commitment. And it just doesn't turn on 
the way it used to, you know, when I was in my pre-Saturn return, there were lots of yeses and lots of big messes made out of that. And now, yeah, there's a lot less that's correct to fully jump into, at least in this stage. On a related note, I saw a quote from Keanu Reeves just the other day that I really liked. It said, I'm at that stage in life where I stay out of discussions. Even if you say one plus one equals five, you're right. Have fun. I think Keanu's got some wisdom there. And maybe that's a, what you're kind of describing. It's like, you know, you've really got to feel clear, correct, or this is for you if you're going to go jump in that arena. If no one's asking, then it's like, what's the point? That's interesting. You know, there's something else that is striking me as I'm looking at your chart. We're talking about the bridging gates is whenever I think about bridging gates, I love that you're highlighting this possibility of becoming an expert of those bridging gates being the area that you become mm -hmm. expert in because there's such a sensitivity to those themes and that that can be the gift of the wisdom of those areas rather than the source of a feeling of inadequacy. With those bridging gates, I'm always drawn to look at what you do have mm -hmm. on the other end. It's like, what is your end of that channel, your piece that you do naturally bring to the other? And for some reason, you having that gate 60 and the 52 in the root mm. just seem like such potentially grounding anchors. If I think about when that really fires, mm -hmm. it's going to throw everything into the chaos of difficulty at the beginning and massive reordering mm -hmm. based on that mutation that you can't ever really go back from. For you to hold the end that's gate 60, which is basically the limitation of being able to look at and say, mm. that's actually not a real mutation. That's not actually truly something that is empowering. So there's no way it would be worth diving into the chaos of difficulty at the beginning for something that's going to just disempower people. Like, why would you do that? So there's like such a value yeah. to the ends that we do hold in those bridging dynamics. It's like, Thank God there's the capacity in the root to be still mm -hmm. and to be limited and to not move and to not be moved mm -hmm. until it's internally moved in a genuine way. What a grounding force. Absolutely. I like that. I mean, I think about that with my six, like I love the side that's conflict that brings the friction. That's like, Hey, are we doing this? Is this real intimacy or not real intimacy? You know, or can we get in? Can we tell the truth? First, I was just like, Oh, these obnoxious red gates I have, conflict, principles, control. And yeah, to see what they do bring, I think is beautiful. I think there's something that we hear from a lot of people who are attempting to enter the experiment and study human design. You seem like someone who has really gone through your own process in terms of this toggling or balancing or dancing between deep mental study synthesis, taking in the information and all of the details and the volume of that versus the going out with the body or waking up day by day and living the experiment. Do you have something you could say about what that dance has been like for you? Yeah, I definitely feel like the living embodiment is where the pay dirt is. I don't have the right word for that. Like, that's what matters. And you guys have been inviting me to do this podcast with you for two years, three years, I don't know, years. <laughs> and I didn't want to 
be parroting things. Like I didn't want to talk about any of these topics from my intellectual understanding. I didn't really want to talk about anything until I could be telling an actual story or an experience or an observation because it doesn't mean anything. I've already taught somebody else's work because it was what I believed mentally and didn't have a physical embodied understanding of. So even though I've been taking all this information in with human design, you know, I've been really slow to want to teach it or share it. Like I really just want to embody it and experience it. And like I said, I think a lot of the studying has been keeping my mind busy and also vetting it. Like I felt like I had to take the whole thing in. You know, we talk about a gate is the lines one through three being interested in their process, very personally interested. And then four and five are looking across the channel and six is looking at the circuit. I feel like when I found human design, I had to look at the circuit of it, like the whole thing and how does cosmology fit in there and how like the whole thing, especially before I started speaking about it. So I think the embodied part has been the most valuable. I will share also though, I'm six years into my experiment and Sometimes I feel like I'm just failing miserably at it. Like, do I actually wait to respond? Am I initiating? What is initiating? Did I initiate this conversation? It's also just an experiment. And I'm watching it, whether I do it, quote, right or wrong. I'm just watching, waiting. I have really had an experience a number of times where Like I realize that I'm usually one step ahead of my body. Like my mind is asking me to do something a few moments before if I had just waited, my body would have gotten up and done that thing. There is a real trust in responding. There's a real just like relaxing and waiting and responding that I'm feeling more and more. I think for a long time, response was a really mental concept and I was trying to figure out if I was initiating or responding. It has taken quite a bit of time to drop into what that feels like, to literally just do nothing for a microsecond longer. Sometimes this is all it takes than I normally would have jumped into something. And then I find, oh, my body's walking to get a glass of water. Out of response, not initiation, like my body got up and did that. It's not easy though. I'm often not like, I am rocking this experiment, but I don't feel like there's any going back or other option. Like if I just wanted to, with my mind, launch a new business or enterprise or something, it just, it couldn't happen anymore. Seven years ago, it could. I would have found the energy. I would have kept it moving. I would have motivated myself with my open centers. And now it just doesn't feel possible. I love what you're saying because I think it's so helpful to just take the performance out of it all. And sometimes even to like, try to forget it all. I don't know. There's so much in awakening work that's like, be vigilant and be alert and stay aware and be conscious and stay awake. And it's like, yes, that's good. And there's something to be said for moments of just relax and do the best you can and and wait and see and trust you'll know what you need to know when you need to know it. And yesterday... I've been really trying to get down to Florida to see these friends of mine. And yesterday I finally was just like, you know what? I'm going to do it this weekend before this other trip and make it all happen. And I did decide quickly. There was a yes that 2946 turned on. I was excited about it. I booked the tickets. And then 30 minutes after, I'm nervous about it. 
And I'm like, oh, why am I nervous about this? Like, did I need more days at home? Did I this? Did I that? And I know I'm not supposed to go. And a couple hours after that, I find out my horse is going lame and I actually need to be home this weekend to be with her. We may need to make some real decisions about her health. So by this morning, as I'm canceling my tickets, I'm just chuckling about all the added energy, just a little bit of waiting and for that nervousness to subside, I would have avoided all that. And I do think my system knew It knew that there was a reason that I couldn't go. And it even knew that it wasn't just, you know, the timing's not right. Yeah. So the experiment can also be just, well, do it wrong, initiate some things, decide really fast, and then watch how often that works out. And I'm finding more and more that I can do some things impulsively. I do have a defined spleen. I think if it's just about my health or wellness, there are things I can jump into. But if it's really a decision more often than I would like to be true, that emotional process. It doesn't have to be a long amount of time, but it does have to at least feel settled. And it knows things. Mess up your experiment and see see how that goes. (laughs) I think those reference points in our experience can sometimes be as, if not way more impactful as getting it right. I did it right. I waited. I wasn't nervous. I got clear. Then I did the thing and it was really satisfying. It worked out great. And you get the feeling in your body of when you know something and you go against it. And, you know, someone might be smart enough to do that once. I seem to do that a bunch of times, you know, but that feeling that is imprinted. So I go, Ooh, that's the thing where it's probably not going to work out. Yeah. I think imprinting the feeling of correctness, the feeling of incorrectness, the feeling of rushing. Like at the end of the day, you know, all of us analysts, like we can give a reading, we can read the map to somebody, but we can never know what it feels like to internalize that trait. My two channels, root to spleen and root to solar plexus, the longer I live with that, I'm like, that's kind of one process, this sensitivity and this correcting The same way two gates form a channel, that's a different thing. These two channels are in one definition, and I think they're a thing. They're linked in a way that I am still figuring out what that looks and feels like. So no one can explain that to somebody else in a reading. Like We can just get, hey, here's a bunch of things to watch and wonder about and play with, but someday you will have a sense for what this whole island feels like in you. And when it turns off and on and when it's a yes or a no, and I think that's a slow personal process. Yeah. And what I like about what you're saying is that the body will often know if the mind doesn't, the mind may not understand or be able to make sense of why something's happening or not happening, but it's almost like the body has its own sense and place within nature that is much more connected than our minds ever are. And kind of like the example you gave of you kind of knew that you weren't supposed to be there and the body's going to get nervous or the body's going to move when it moves. And I think that's a big part of what the experiment is about is how much can we trust that and and let the body do what it's going to do. Or even see it as a success that the body didn't let you go through with it. We're not here to be perfect. When I think about this concept of Roz that like we're all collectively evolving the Ajna center of the unborn child of the universe, it's a wild concept. 
But this thing, like, yeah, what if we each have these traits that you can see it, especially in a detriment, right? You have this quality that's like a little wonky or maybe hasn't been worked out quite well and figure out when exactly that's designed to be used in the symphony of choices. And we probably use it wrong more often than correctly. And then you find, oh, where does this detriment, this seemingly negative quality fit perfectly in the symphony. And I think that is what moves this needle some tiny, tiny amount for maybe the next time someone comes in with that trait, they can use it a little bit better. That's at least I know Genoa is one who really talks about that and has really resonated with me. Like if we can move any needle the tiniest bit and handle any trait the tiniest bit better than when that trait was handed to us, what a gift. Such a great perspective. Mm-hmm. On detriment. Yeah. Sounds like one of your philosophies too, John, What's... that you always say, which is leave it a little better than you found it. <laughs> it was handed to me like this. Uh, maybe I did my little part. Yeah. Like, what if we applied that phrase? I love that to every gate you have. Like, hey, leave that gate a little better than you found it. Leave this quality that's in the collective in the world. Like, what if you can leave that quality <laughs> a little better than you found it? You know, that quality in Mars, that quality with this color in Jupiter, in exaltation. Like there's so many variations of these lines in really specific ways that could be maybe up-leveled a little. It's been just such a gift to me to have this era of knowing you these last six years and then to see you take something like this and digest it and synthesize it in your own way. Thank you. I have so enjoyed, I feel like I've created a little nest inside the Human Design Collective. I can just incubate. And if I am looking at how people behave and how they use their power and if they mutate things, I feel like that's what you guys are doing. You are sharing this work with such integrity and such clarity and such lived experience. I've been really grateful to be connected to you as I am trying to digest this. It's just been really refreshing to find you and and get to be part of what you're creating. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. It's a lot of fun and hopefully we can do this again. I think that we have a lot more to talk about. So thank you. Yeah, that'd be fun. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Human Design Collective podcast. If you enjoy the show, please review us and share. You can find us at humandesigncollective.com and explore our course and workshop offerings at courses.humandesigncollective.com. Music for the Human Design Collective podcast is courtesy of Meg Ruby and Anders Parker. For more information, see the show notes. And please stay tuned for upcoming episodes on the same channel.